What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to The Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And uh, today, I've got not a normal episode. I uh, did this keynote speech, keynote lecture last week at uh, Ritsumeikan University in uh, Kyoto, Japan. And they wanted me to talk about uh, nuclear war risks in East Asia. I had this concept that I had been uh, messing with for a while that I was calling nuclear precarity and using it to explain why basically all nuclear crises are not equally unstable. So I gave this speech. That's the audio that you have. It was this huge event um, and it was two parts. And so the first part was the keynote speech, which is the audio that you're about to hear. And then the second part, I don't have the audio for, which is sort of too bad. But if you were, this became like public um, chatter for a little bit or for, you know, like one day, whatever, because there was a the second panel that had Jeffrey Lewis, who is a arms control wonk, right? The scholar at Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. He's a, a friend of the pod, a buddy. And he was on the second panel and his institute discovered via open source methods, these hundreds of Chinese nuclear silos that splashed all over global news a few weeks ago. And on that same panel, there was a, a scholar from a Chinese university who came with a fucking PowerPoint presentation, totally stock prepared. He just gaslit the shit out of all of us, but out of fucking uh, Jeffrey in particular, claiming, among other things, he claimed a whole bunch of bullshit, frankly, but the main fucking gaslighting thing was that the Chinese so-called nuclear silos were actually uh, wind farms, wind turbines. So fuck you, man. So I adjusted my glasses with my middle finger. I had a screenshot. It was like a whole thing. Anyways, that section of the uh, keynote event, don't we don't have audio for, for whatever reason, but we've got this audio of my keynote speech. It's more, um, not staccato, it's more paced, slower than I normally speak because they had to do simultaneous interpretation because it's fucking, you know, Japanese university. And so it's not my normal rhythm of speaking. Obviously, there's no fucking F-bombs or anything. So take that for what it's worth. I think if you're interested in either the dynamics of security in East Asia, my recommendations for like, okay, so what do we fucking do? Or this concept of like nuclear precarity. If you're into any of that, I think you're going to get a lot out of this talk, even though the pacing is much more mellow than I fucking normally do. So have a listen. We'll get into normal episodes again, maybe next week, very soon. But uh, enjoy. Peace. So thank you, everybody, for uh, joining today. I'm especially very grateful to Ritsumeikan University, the Center for uh, East Asian Peace and Cooperation Studies, AGI, the Center for Korean Studies, for inviting me. And this could, of course, not come at a more relevant time, a more important time. It seems like every day this month, there has been news about nuclear proliferation, or missile proliferation, or missile tests, or new missile technology. And all of it has involved Northeast Asia or the United States. Um, and so to make better sense of what's going on right now, 
uh, I wanted to step back very quickly and uh, set the historical frame for our, our current moment. In uh, the years immediately following the Cold War, many Asia watchers made uh, pessimistic predictions uh, about the region's future. So in contrast with what was known as the you know, so-called end of history in the West, the East was supposedly, quote unquote, ripe for rivalry. And Northeast Asia in particular was considered the sub-region within the Asia Pacific in which the risks of nuclear conflict were most acute. Now this ripe for rivalry prediction it was wrong, or at least it was, at best it was premature, right? To the extent that there were risks of war, especially nuclear war in Northeast Asia, they proved to be uh, fairly distant or remote. There have been multiple crises in Northeast Asia over the past generation. Uh, my remarks today will uh, talk a lot about that, but they were the exception. The crises were the exception, not the rule. The rule, which is to say the prevailing pattern of international relations in Northeast Asia has been situational military restraint and economic growth and set against a backdrop of steady arms buildups and enduring mistrust among nations, right? And this pattern, you know, a lot of people were comfortable with this pattern, but I believe, and I'll try to explain today, that actually it's it's part of the problem now. Uh, if we jump to the conclusion that Asia is simply ripe for rivalry in the way that it was once uh, predicted, we distort our own image of the problem, and then we make our actions a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. So I want to distance myself from this uh, ripe for rivalry interpretation of Northeast Asia. But at the same time, I want to paint a picture that is bleak, is troublesome. But because it's an accurate picture, it's kind of the only way to proceed. If you're a policymaker or analyst or activist who cares about war and peace. And so what I want to convince you of today is that Northeast Asia is experiencing what I call nuclear precarity, which is to say the risks of nuclear war in Northeast Asia are intolerably high because of the way that situational and structural risks are both increasing and intersecting. So what do I mean? The norm of situational military restraint in uh, Northeast Asia is eroding everywhere, right? Not just on the part of China and North Korea, but uh, most especially in the United States, uh, as well as to some extent South Korea and uh, to some degree even Japan, right? The way nations have prioritized economic growth, not simply the fact, of prioritizing economic growth, but the way of doing it has heightened appeals to nationalism and jingoism over time. And what I would describe as the structural pressures favoring uh, nuclear conflict are growing as the result of both a, a hollowed out global arms control regime 
in parallel with a nuclear modernization by nuclear states and conventional military modernization by everybody, by nuclear states and non-nuclear states. So uh, in my time today, I'm gonna do three things in order to, to characterize the nuclear dangers we face in, in Northeast Asia. First, I will uh, briefly describe my approach toward risk, what I mean by situational versus structural risk, and then how the intersection uh, of these concepts make for very precarious conditions. Second, I will paint a picture of the pattern of Northeast Asia's international relations uh, since the Cold War. It'll be stylized. And I'll explain how that pattern is giving rise to greater nuclear precarity. And then third, uh, I will posit three specific pathways uh, to war on the Korean Peninsula and across the Taiwan Strait. Um, the East China Sea, I should mention, it replicates some of the circumstances uh, that we find in Korea and Taiwan, um, and therefore there are some risks in the East China Sea as well, but they're not nearly as acute uh, as they are in Korea and Taiwan, uh, which is where I'll focus my remarks. And then I'll conclude with a few thoughts about, you know, what this means for those of us who prioritize avoiding nuclear war, you know, some recommendations, and that's how we'll do it. Okay, so uh, nuclear war is an outcome that is by definition not predictable. And because we cannot predict nuclear war, we can't assign reliable, what we would say in statistics, probability distributions, right? And this basic fact, and it's a fact, has never stopped pundits and analysts from assigning subjective probability estimates to an event like nuclear war, right? Uh, so in my uh, 2017 or my 2018 book about the 2017 nuclear crisis with North Korea, I quoted several experts who commented publicly about the specific odds of nuclear war with uh, North Korea at the time, right? And the odds they gave ranged from 30% to 70%. But what do those numbers mean? They don't really mean anything. What's the difference between them? Not really anything, right? Those numbers are a numerical substitute for someone expressing their own personal confidence about danger. So it's just numericized opinions, right? And I mentioned this because uh, I don't believe it's helpful to estimate the likelihood of nuclear war, but I do believe that foresight is a real thing. We can have an exercise foresight. Uh, I do believe it's helpful and possible to characterize risks and then to understand that risks can compound, making some situations more prone to catastrophe than other situations. And if we can diagnose risks of something like nuclear war before they happen, right? Sketch out those scenarios and pathways to disaster before they happen, then we can use that grim blueprint to prevent it from becoming real. So I use this term um, nuclear precarity 
to refer not to a likelihood or a probability of nuclear war, but rather to the intersectional risks of nuclear war, specifically the intersection of situational and structural risk. So structural risk is a familiar concept to scholars of international relations. And I use this term in a way that is familiar to most. Um, it's, it means impersonal forces that create rational incentives to either use nuclear weapons, so crisis instability, or to escalate an arms competition, so arms racing instability, right? Either of those constitutes structural risk. When there are vast asymmetries in uh, military power between rivals, for example, or when the offense-defense balance favors the offense, there, those are conditions where there are rational incentives for decision makers to either use nuclear weapons or to try to outarm one's opponent, even though doing so makes the situation worse because the opponent will reciprocate. So structural risk is relational risk. It's system level risk, right? It's not about what you do, but about what pressures you face and the magnitude of the stakes weighing on your choices. Now, situational risk, by contrast, it's not a common term and it's, it's, it's not structural, it's actor-centric. And it refers to the degree of reliance on coercive military signaling toward a rival, toward an adversary. And there's always some coercive signaling going on in a crisis. And between adversaries, there's often military signaling even when you're not in a crisis. It's just how, how adversaries tend to communicate with each other, right? Via the military instrument. But when you're using uh, weapons platforms or defense posture or new declaratory policies as a way of communicating threats to an adversary, you're introducing dangerous possibilities, of course, right? And so the, the situational risk of nuclear war is uh, higher when your reliance on military signaling is greater. And the reason for this is because the nature of military signaling is that it's crude and imprecise. And so the more you use military signaling for coercive purposes, the more you introduce opportunities for errors in judgment, for misperceptions, for accidents, right? So uh, these two concepts are essential together, right? Situational and structural risk. We can judge structural risk in an abstract or generalized way. And then situational risks involve specific concrete situations, real specific scenarios, right? And so there were a pair of scholars named Julia McDonald and Mark Bell who uh, published research a couple years ago about how all nuclear crises are not equally unstable, right? And the way that I differentiate structural and situational risk shares that view.
So these two concepts are important because it's possible to have a situation that is structurally unstable, and yet somehow it's under control because there's very little military signaling going on, right? Very little threat making. Likewise, it's possible to have a situation that is fraught with threat making, full of military posturing, but then it remains basically under control because neither side has any incentive to actually go to war. And so if we look at the uh, India-China conflict in 2020, as an example here, there was a great deal of back and forth threat making, coercive military signaling in uh, the 2020 conflict, right? But no arms racing instability, no crisis instability, incentives for nuclear use uh, on both sides, India and China, they were quite low. And so because of this, it was a stable conflict dyad. Conversely, if we think about the US and the Soviet Union toward the end of the Cold War in the 1980s, right? There was a moderate, maybe high, nuclear first use pressures at that time, right? And there were tremendous arms racing pressures. There was a very intense arms race, in fact, in the 1980s. Um, and the, these both represent forms of what I call structural risk. Yet there was no confrontation in the 80s that looked anything like the Cuban Missile Crisis from 1962, right? Course of military signaling in the 80s was much more restrained than it had been in 1962. And there were dangers in the 1980s, right? The Able Archer military exercise in 1983. I don't want, I don't want to downplay the dangers of that moment. Um, and there was military signaling going on between the US and the Soviet Union, but it was not brinkmanship. It, it did not have an apocalyptic character and it was not all that frequent in compared to um, crises from previous eras. And so consequently, there was no acute crisis in that period of the 1980s between the US and the Soviet Union, except for the Able Archer accident in 83. And so the point here is that all nuclear dyads are not equally unstable. All nuclear crises are not equally unstable. So I've uh, introduced this concept of nuclear precarity as the intersection of high structural risks and high situational risks, right? And I can now turn to the second task I promised, which is to describe the changing pattern of uh, Northeast Asian international relations. And so there's a useful reference here. South Korea's uh, former president, uh, Park Geun-hye, she used to characterize Northeast Asia as a quote unquote Asian paradox, which was uh, that international relations were constituted of hot, economics and cold politics. That was the popular phrase that we all know, right? Um, and with the crucial exception of uh, North Korea, nations were simultaneously pursuing close economic ties with one another, 
um, in order to achieve economic growth, even while they also built up military capabilities and were relying on balance of power strategies, right? So that, that narrative about Northeast Asia after the Cold War, it's not wrong. Um, it's just incomplete, right? So the prevailing character of Northeast Asia has been hot economics called politics. And economic interdependence has grown even while uh, mistrust has remained high, even while territorial disputes have uh, lingered or festered. But the missing element that made that paradox possible was situational military restraint. There were uh, several crisis moments, arguably, in, uh, since the Cold War. So 1994, 1996, 1998, 2010, 2017. Except for those moments, the past 40 years, nations have mostly avoided provocative military actions toward their neighbors, right? And you can say that the reason for restraint is because of uh, greed or because of the fear of retaliation or the costs of war, but it's simply a fact that for much of the past 40 years, the phenomenon of hot economics called politics has been enabled by or accompanied by military buildups and military restraint. So this historical pattern is breaking down in the worst kind of ways. So if we look to defense spending, which is usually the first indicator that uh, experts look at, the building danger is not obvious. It's not evident, right? Or at least it's not much worse than in prior decades. Defense spending is not radically out of control compared to previous years, previous decades. But what defense spending figures miss is that the military modernization projects of all Northeast Asian powers are growing. Missile technology continues to proliferate across all the Northeast Asian powers. The region's three nuclear states, China, North Korea, the US, uh, they're all pursuing nuclear expansion programs in a manner that pretty closely resembles a qualitative arms race. And these same three nuclear states are relying more heavily on coercive military signaling toward one another as time passes. So the old pattern is breaking down. So on the uh, structural risk side, there is growing conventional missile and nuclear proliferation, right? Um, the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, you know, they recently revealed through open source methods that China has constructed more than 200 nuclear silos to house intercontinental ballistic missiles. The outer bound of China's existing arsenal is estimated at up to 350 nuclear warheads. Um, these are from these are launchable from fixed sites and mobile locations. So submarines, bombers, road mobile launchers. Um, but the discovery of new silos suggests that that number of nuclear warheads could actually grow further still, right? And there is 
a debate in China about whether to abandon its traditional nuclear posture of minimum deterrence and also whether a policy of nuclear no first use uh, when it comes to nuclear weapons should be uh, conditional toward the United States or unconditional toward the United States, right? There's a lot at stake in that internal debate. And that internal debate rests partly on external factors, things that the United States does, for example. And there is a growing concern among US officials about China pursuing what is called a quote unquote, fractal orbital bombardment system, FOBs, right? And this was what was just tested very recently that the Financial Times reported, a FOBs capability paired with a hypersonic capability. The FOBs capability would involve launching nuclear warheads briefly into low earth orbit before um, directing them down to their targets. And that maneuver would make it possible to bypass uh, early warning detection systems, right? So from the American nuclear perspective, this is uh, you know very concerning. If US officials believe that US early warning systems are unreliable against attack and that their defenses are unreliable against attack, different policymakers will react differently to that situation, right? The most aggressive voices in Washington could end up urging not just you know, doubling down on an arms race, but urging an American first strike nuclear posture or launch on warning nuclear posture against China, right? And the Biden administration's response to China's nuclear expansion so far, it has been merely to rationalize adopting the pretty aggressive nuclear policies of the Trump era. So um, dissatisfied with America's large margin of nuclear superiority over China, the Biden administration has picked up where Trump left off um, on a path to more than a trillion dollars in uh, nuclear modernization over 30 years. And that investment includes investments in low yield, quote unquote, tactical nuclear warheads, more missile defenses for Northeast Asia, and a plan to buy 145 B-21 stealth bombers, which is more than six times the size of the current B-2 bomber force. America's entire nuclear enterprise is at the moment being justified as a response to threat perceptions regarding China. And the irony is that what China is doing is itself a response to American nuclear modernization, right? And so on this basis, there are some nuclear specialists in the United States who advocate for a nuclear strategy based on both unlimited nuclear superiority and brinkmanship. And that sounds crazy, but it's true. There are people who believe that. They've written about it, you know? Now, on the Korean Peninsula, we've got a similar story, similar problem. Slightly different, though. North Korea's nuclear and missile buildup has obviously continued unchecked, right? It's pursuing new directions 
with its nuclear and missile capabilities that include submarine-launched ballistic missiles, tactical nuclear warheads, hypersonic glide vehicles, and Pyongyang's newly demonstrated um, ability to launch ballistic missiles from rail cars, a new kind of mobile launcher, right? So unless North Korea has incentives to restrain its nuclear modernization, the future next steps for North Korea, I mean, there's no limit. It's, you know, the next steps are going to be a MIRV capability, uh, MIRV, sorry, multiple independent re-entry vehicle, MIRV, which helps defeat missile defenses. And if now that China is developing a FOBs capability, North Korea eventually will also, and that also helps defeat missile defenses. So MIRV capability, FOBs capability, hypersonic capability, all three of those are different ways of defeating missile defenses. And then with US, US support, South Korea has been mounting its own uh, conventional missile-based response to North Korea's nuclear advancements. And this adds a unique layer of danger to the Korea situation. Uh, so in May this year, Washington jointly announced with Seoul that uh, South Korea no longer needed to restrict the range and payload capabilities of its indigenous missile production. That ban that we have abandoned now, it went back 42 years and it aimed to curb regional missile proliferation. That's no more. Biden's team has also stood steadfastly by its South Korean ally as it fields its own conventional submarine-launched ballistic missile, um, and then frustrated by a lack of progress in uh, arresting North Korea's capability, South Korea's political opposition has begun predictably renewing calls to develop its own nuclear weapons. And since the Obama era, the United States has steadily facilitated South Korea um, their military, bringing to fruition a quote-unquote kill chain concept of precision-guided conventional missiles that um, it advertises as being capable of preemptive strikes and leadership decapitation strikes, basically assassination by missile, right? And then it's worth, I don't mention uh, Japan on the slides, but it's worth just mentioning Japan briefly here. Even though I'm um, far less concerned about Japan than the rest of the region at the moment, I should note that, you know, while Japan possesses short-range cruise missiles, ballistic missile defenses, it arguably exhibits the least structural and situational risk of any uh, Northeast Asian power, at least for now. And we all know that uh, within the LDP, there are debates about pursuing offensive strike missiles or marrying a missile arsenal to offensive doctrine, and as well as having longer range missiles, acquiring longer range missiles. Um, and two of the candidates for prime minister in the recent race had voiced support for acquiring nuclear-powered submarines eventually. And 
if South Korea goes nuclear, which is a growing risk, hardly inevitable, but a growing risk, Japan will be faced with a once in a century decision about how best to secure itself in a rapidly deteriorating neighborhood or security environment. So Japan's situation could get uh, much worse very quickly. And Japan is not modernizing uh, at the same sort of arms racing pace as its neighbors, but it is moving in that direction as well. Now, these structural risks of nuclear war, they're greater than any point in the past generation. The trajectory is that they're going to worsen. That's why we're seeing these things in the news right now, literally right now. And the Korean Peninsula in particular is unusually worrying because there's an actual asymmetric uh, arms race happening between a nuclear state and a non-nuclear state which is strangely, uniquely volatile. In addition to the more traditional nuclear balance of terror between the two nuclear states, the US and North Korea. So it's, it's compounding risk, it's layers of danger. So, if, uh, so we've talked about the structural risks facing Northeast Asia, how that is building, right? If we turn to consider situational risks, we see that the trend is also going in the wrong direction. So this is really what made the North Korean nuclear crisis in 2017 so dangerous and so different from things that happened before, right? And I also believe this is why a crisis in the Taiwan Strait today would be more like 2017 than like 1996. It's a different situation across the Taiwan Strait today, in part because of growing situational risks. So coercive military signaling has become the dominant way that antagonists communicate uh, in Korea and increasingly the way that Beijing communicates to Taipei. So coercive military signaling, it's obviously not a new phenomenon on the Korean Peninsula. As we all know, North Korea has this very long history of using colorful rhetoric to, to variously criticize and threaten the United States and its Northeast Asian neighbors. Um, in my first book, I wrote about how this, this historical record actually created a signal versus noise problem in the United States where US officials and soldiers often had trouble distinguishing between real threats and cheap talk because there was so much hot rhetoric and there was so much military signaling. It created a signal to noise problem for decision makers. So North Korea's contribution to situational risk, it's persistent, it's always been there. It's, it's, it's very much there right now, but it's not new, right? North Korean state media, routinely warn of violence in ways that are direct and not so direct, you know? During the 2017 nuclear crisis, North Korean um, threats and insults toward Donald Trump, they were pretty intense, they were pretty uh, gratuitous. And over the past year, it has returned to using missile tests as a crude 
means of communication with the United States especially. And of course, in 2020, it exploded, blew up the uh, inter-Korean liaison office at Kaesong, right? Another military signal. It is out of frustration that they do something like this, frustration about a lack of diplomatic progress toward the insecurity problem, right? Toward sanctions relief, among other things. And all of this just shows North Korea is keeping up its tradition of relying heavily on coercive military signaling in its relations with the US and South Korea. What's new is that the US and to some degree South Korea have increased their reliance on coercive military signaling toward North Korea since 2010. So while North Korea's uh, threat making toward the United States in uh, 2017 was consistent with its long-standing brinkmanship strategy. The novelty of that historical moment was that the United States was effectively mirror imaging North Korea. The United States also adopted basically a brinkmanship strategy, right? Kim Jong-un's barbs thrown at Trump's age, his corruption, his mental acuity, they were commensurate with Trump's claims against Kim Jong-un's weight or North Korea's struggling economy, threat for threat, insult for insult. And so the 2017 crisis was so combustible precisely because both sides were defiantly escalating coercive military signaling against a backdrop of unprecedented first use and arms racing pressures. So it was, it was, it was the very definition of nuclear precarity, the highest structural risks and the highest situational risks, right? The United States had a history of restraining its rhetoric and using its military signaling much more selectively. And that norm, historically, it gave way in 2017 as part of basically adopting a brinkmanship strategy. And the Biden administration, you know, they're, they're more restrained in their rhetoric than the Trump presidency, of course, right? Uh, and President Moon Jae-in in South Korea, he's more restrained in his rhetoric than his predecessors. But uh, Biden has shown very little care for the risks implied in uh, military signaling through non-rhetorical means military signaling through changes in uh, force posture and military exercises, right? Biden is fine with that. What's more, there is a contingent, I've said this before, of nuclear policy experts in the United States aligned with the Republican Party who increasingly argue that 2017 was a model, okay? that the United States ought to be pursuing a brinkmanship signaling strategy in tandem with achieving, securing a structural position of nuclear superiority. So again, it's this brinkmanship plus nuclear superiority thing that compounds dangers for everybody in the region, including for the United States itself. And it's not just the United States that has decided to accept greater situational risk South Korea has as well. 
So under conservative presidents, Lee Myung-bak and Park Geun-hye, South Korea began making a lot more direct verbal threats toward North Korea uh, for the first time really since the end of the Cold War. And this was in addition to seeking very publicly advertised defense reforms after 2010 aimed at conducting military operations against North Korea. And so when uh, Moon Jae-in came to power in 2017, he he restrained South Korea's rhetoric toward uh, Pyongyang, but he continued with the military buildup of his predecessors. He accepted the continuing, the mounting structural risk. He just tried to mute the situational risk, right? And this trend of greater military signaling it's not limited to the Korean peninsula, okay? Maybe arguably it's worse in Korea, but it exists across the Taiwan Strait too. So China has obviously embraced what it now dubs wolf warrior diplomacy, right? Which escalates transgressive threat rhetoric toward all antagonists. And since Sino-US relations began to deteriorate in uh, 2018, China has become more openly hostile toward Taiwan, incidentally, and more openly willing to threaten the use of force against Taiwan. And so the uh, People's Liberation Army Air Force, uh, PLA Air Force, has steadily increased its incursions into Taiwan's um, ADIZ, ADIZ, Air Defense Identification Zone. At the beginning of this month, over a four-day period, the PLA Air Force set a new record with almost uh, 150 fighter aircraft incursions into Taiwan's ADIZ, Air Defense Identification Zone. The situation has become such that Taiwan's defense minister uh, publicly warned that military tensions across the Taiwan Strait are at the worst, most dangerous level in 40 years, okay? Taiwan lacks the ability to basically build a military that could adequately defend against a Chinese invasion, I think, but that hasn't stopped it from trying to acquire multiple types of cruise missiles and seeking an indigenous submarine capability. And so this pattern across the Taiwan Strait manifests, you know, in Korea, but worse in Korea, uh, and then in the East China Sea as well, but not quite as intensely. But you see that, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy is combining with an escalation of PLA Navy and PLA Air Force incursions into disputed waters, disputed airspace. We have multiple uh, danger points, flashpoints in Northeast Asia, and they share similar attributes. What makes them each dangerous is similar, but the danger is not equally felt, right? They're not equally unstable. So at this point, you know, I've explained how nuclear precarity arises from the intersection of high structural risks and high situational risks. And I've explained how the nuclear precarity in Northeast Asia is springing from this once stable pattern of hot economics and cold politics. 
I would like now to sort of briefly describe pathways to nuclear war in Korea and Taiwan. And my aim is not so much to provide a vivid description of like a fictional scenario, but rather just to focus on some key elements, right? Different ways that a condition of nuclear precarity can plausibly lead to catastrophe. And this draws directly from three pathways to war that I outlined in uh, my most recent book on the brink, Trump, Kim, and the threat of nuclear war. Um, but they apply across Korea and the Taiwan Strait. And those pathways are uh, preventive war of choice, a spiral model of escalation, and then what I call a false positive war. So the preventive war of choice, you know, it's it seems pathological to say that a state could voluntarily opt to launch a war during peacetime. Um, but most of America's wars, in fact, since the end of the Cold War, have been precisely that, preventive wars of choice. So it clearly can happen. The 2003 invasion of Iraq was a preventive war of choice, okay? In 2017, momentum in Washington was building toward a preventive war against North Korea, right? In spite of North Korea's nuclear deterrent. And that sentiment toward North Korea in 2017, it never really went away. It, it lingers in Washington to this day. And it's not unthinkable that China could pursue a preventive war of choice against Taiwan, depending on domestic conditions inside China, partly. As inequality in China has worsened, and as Chinese society has become more repressive, Xi Jinping has relied more on appeals to ethno-nationalism as a basis for the Communist Party of China's legitimacy. In that context, Xi Jinping has stressed the importance and inevitability of unifying Taiwan with the mainland. And his, his personal rhetoric, uh, my interpretation is that it is not more belligerent than his predecessors. Xi Jinping's personal rhetoric has actually been uh, slightly more restrained toward Taiwan than some of his predecessors. But he has also stated that, quote, Taiwan independence separatism is the biggest obstacle to achieving the reunification of the motherland and the most serious hidden danger to national rejuvenation, right? Now, because Xi Jinping has drawn such a firm red line against Taiwanese declarations of formal independence. That means that whether China uh, launches a premeditated attack against Taiwan, it could depend on the incentives in Taiwan's domestic politics. So it's Taiwan's domestic decisions that could put China in a position to do the unthinkable. So in both Korea and the Taiwan Strait, there are plausible ways that preventive war could occur. The leading indicators that we have to watch out for, I mean, there's many, but it's 
heightened war rhetoric, which we're seeing, right? Uh, Large-scale military deployments, which across the Taiwan Strait we are not seeing, um, and changes in military alert levels, right? In Korea, because the preventive war would almost certainly be a U.S. decision, not a North Korean decision, the, uh, the sign of imminent worry would be bipartisan statements supporting military operations against North Korea in a context where Pyongyang has uh, conducted an atmospheric nuclear test or committed some kind of act of violence. If you see those things happening, immediate danger, right? And in Taiwan, the catalyst is basically anything that the PRC might interpret as a Taiwanese declaration of independence, um, especially if the background context of what's happening in China at that time involves an acute economic crisis in China, which we are not quite seeing yet, but it's not impossible. So a second pathway to war in either Korea or the Taiwan Strait follows uh, more straightforward from the literature, right? The classical spiral model of conflict. So war is an irrational thing, right? It's an irrational outcome, but it can be the result of rational reciprocal decisions to take defensively motivated offensive actions that aim at deterrence, but that compel the other side to do the same thing, thereby causing deterrence to fail. So again, in 2017, the United States was on this pathway with North Korea, right? Both sides kept escalating military signaling as one side's brinkmanship strategy clashed with the other side's brinkmanship strategy. And the mutual posturing had escalated to the point that the next logical step was for either side to employ some form of limited coercive violence, right? At the time when Kim Jong-un tested an ICBM on November 28, 2017, the United States was actively considering a quote-unquote bloody nose strike against Kim Jong-un. That would have forced Kim Jong-un to retaliate in kind. And once you start, once you open up violence, you cannot necessarily control what happens next, right? Across the Taiwan Strait, a conflict spiral is far more plausible a path to conflict than preventive war, right? If a single PLA Air Force fighter collides with a Taiwan F-16 or forces down a Taiwanese F-16, it is likely that at a minimum, the United States and Taiwan would muster additional shows of military force, right? Meant to warn the PLA Air Force against further incidents, further incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. PLA Air Force would almost certainly respond with military shows of force in kind. And that triggers a militarized standoff, right? It may also happen that the PLA Air Force collides with or uh, shoots down a US aircraft conducting uh, what's called SRO operations, sensitive reconnaissance operations. Uh, this happened in 2001. The 2001 incident in which a US EP-3 reconnaissance aircraft 
collided with a PLA fighter. It was resolved peacefully, um, but only because the crew members on board were not killed, right? They were held captive. And at that time, China and the United States were not rivals. They were thick in cooperation with each other when that happened. And also in 2001, America's local military capacity in Northeast Asia, it was far, far in excess of uh, the PLA and its regional capacity, right? So if you, if you create that same incident from 2001, but in a context where the American crew members die or where there is an existing confrontation, active rivalry, as we have been in, it could end differently than 2001. It could end in conflict, right? And then a third pathway to war with either North Korea or China involves what I call false positive, which is misperceived military signals that indicate to the receiver of the signal that war or an attack is imminent, even though it is not imminent, right? And so the possibility of a false positive war, it exists in, with China, right? Under conditions of nuclear precarity, the unappreciated risk is that either the US or PRC postures its military in a way that unintentionally communicates that an attack of some kind is about to happen. The key indicators that might trigger a false positive war include the announced withdrawal of US personnel and civilians in Taiwan, right? Changes in the nuclear alert level, the sudden deployment of you know, nuclear warheads or bombers, abrupt shifts, changes in uh, nuclear declaratory policy, the mobilization or forward positioning of large numbers of forces, the deployment of aircraft carriers, deployment of submarines in the area, right? 24-hour naval surface patrols or combat air patrols. Many of these actions occur in peacetime and they are not meant to signal war, right? But when they occur all at once or in a context of a pre-existing acute confrontation, the problem becomes the fog of the crisis, the compounding of risk factors, uh, so if a leader is uh, feeling sufficiently paranoid or besieged, any number of activities could confirm to them that an attack is imminent. And the tragedy would be that in a false positive scenario, the attacker believes they're acting in self-defense. And while this could happen in Taiwan, it really is the greatest risk on the Korean Peninsula by far. Then uh, we were on this pathway in 2017 as well with Kim Jong-un, right? At that time, almost every imaginable indicator of a U.S. attack was already active. So Kim Jong-un showed forbearance in the crisis, right? He never overreacted, but he could have. Um, amid threats of bloody nose and fire and fury, you know, Kim also saw the deployment of three U.S. carrier strike groups, the deployment of Navy SEALs to the Korean Peninsula, right? Navy SEALs are the guys who killed Osama bin Laden. 
rumors in the media that the CIA was evacuating American civilians from Korea, the deployment, increasing frequency of B-52 bomber deployments to Korea, right? New naval surface ships in Korean waters. Kim's, Kim Jong-un's warning time ahead of an attack had been reduced to almost zero in 2017. If a military accident occurred in that time period, or if he had felt slightly more besieged, he could have launched strikes against US or Japanese targets in, in the name of deterrence, in hopes of deterring further escalation, right? Now, the three pathways I just laid out, they don't especially address nuclear war, but rather general war, right? And the reason for that is that it is unfathomable that nuclear weapons use would occur except within an ongoing crisis or conventional conflict. So uh, I don't want to sound like sanguine or optimistic because I'm not, but we cannot rationally expect that nuclear escalation would happen suddenly in the midst of a peacetime status quo. The condition of possibility that opens up rational incentives to use nuclear weapons is conventional war. So the surest way to manage the risks of nuclear war are to prevent crisis and prevent convention, conventional war. Because once the seal on battlefield violence has been broken, preventing escalation to nuclear use becomes a matter of desperation and gambling. By that point, whether nuclear war happens is a matter for the gods. So in the uh, next panel session, uh, I hope to explore with, with colleagues how we can work to prevent nuclear war. But uh, just as a preview, you know, I want to leave you with a few um, recommendations so that you maybe you feel a little better about what can be done, right? First, we need to pursue some form of arms control with China and North Korea. And that should include not just reductions in stockpiles, but also negotiated restraints on the operationalization of arsenals and attempts to construct nuclear weapon-free zones. I've outlined proposals for how we could do this. Many others have as well. There's no hope of it happening though in a context where everybody is just proliferating missiles and nuclear, modernizing their nuclear arsenals. Right now, everything is unrestrained. And the United States is, is frankly in the strongest position to catalyze a positive change, but it cannot realistically do so without active support, active lobbying from its clients, from Japan, from South Korea, from Taiwan. Because if US allies are making veiled threats about going nuclear themselves, or if they're hand-wringing about, you know, fears of US abandonment, oh my God, uh, then foreign policy hawks in Washington will take that and use it to ensure that uh, America does not make any attempts to restrain its own behavior, its own power, right? Uh, the second thing, Northeast Asia really needs security institutionalism that goes beyond just alliance politics, 
right? An organization modeled on the OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, right? That could be a champion of conflict prevention, and it could provide technical support to arms control negotiation, technical support to cooperative regionalism, right? Um, there are a lot of challenges in Northeast Asia that make a, an OSCE model very difficult to implement, but it is needed and it's the right thing to do, right? The pandemic and the growing threat of climate change among other issues proves that there are transnational security issues uh, that cannot meaningfully be resolved without some kind of regional coordination mechanism. Third, this is a frankly an unusual recommendation for a, a, a lecture on nuclear war, but Asian nations and the United States must find ways to reduce domestic inequalities, right? I mentioned at the beginning of my remarks the indirect role of political economy in heightening nuclear precarity, and then I didn't really address it after that. The dramatic increase in situational risk the past 10 years, this, the heightening of coercive military signaling, that doesn't really make sense. Like, why is that happening? It only makes sense in a world where political leaders appeal to the darker forces in society, like ethno-nationalism. Right? When you allow extreme concentrations of wealth, you create oligarchs at the expense of workers. To maintain political legitimacy in a system where workers are systematically exploited, leaders have, have no choice but to wrap themselves in the flag. Right? And that includes military signaling over territorial disputes. Right? So all of our nations have amassed great wealth, um, but they've done an exceptionally poor job of fairly distributing that wealth. And China and the US, in fact, they have the worst, among the worst levels of inequality. So little surprise that they're the most belligerent and house the most radical political factions favoring militarism, favoring rivalry, right? So if we want to arrest jingoism, that fuels nuclear precarity. We must try to arrest economic inequality, right? And then finally, we need to challenge the military mindset in the region. Every argument for a new weapon system or a new change in defense policy or an increase in a defense budget, it needs better analytical justifications, right? I'm not a pacifist, so I'm open to intellectual arguments about why force or the threat of force might be necessary. And I've made those kinds of arguments myself in a past life, but much of what I've seen in recent decades, um, especially in the United States, it's what I call vulgar balancing. Government officials make vague gestures toward these abstract ideas like the balance of power or commitment to rules-based order. And then they expect that they can push through more aggressive military doctrines or force posture or new investments in new missiles. And if we're going to go down a path of militarism as a region, it cannot be on the basis of lazy, unaccountable arguments. And that's what's been happening in recent years on, on seemingly all sides.
So I'll just end with this, right? Peace researcher Dieter Senghaus, he once described deterrence as a organized peacelessness. And this shares something in common with one of the most important um, insights from deterrence research by two of its leading voices, Alexander George and Richard Smoke. So uh, George and Smoke, they had this classic book called Deterrence in American Foreign Policy. And in it, they argued that deterrence is at best a time-buying strategy, right? The success of it must be measured ultimately based on how one uses the time bought to ameliorate the conditions giving rise to the need for deterrence in the first place, right? In other words, a stability based on fear and risk is a precarious interim condition. It is a means to an end. It is not an end in itself, right? We have lost that and we need to recover that. So even as we practice deterrence, we have to be we have to refuse to be trapped by it. We have to find the exit and we have to use what time we have to make deterrence ultimately unnecessary. Uh, so I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for very interesting and informative keynote that greatly help us understand how dangerous Northeast Asia will be with the um, concept of nuclear precarity shown as the three specific pathways to nuclear war and uh, how to say or what is needed to solve it. Um, yeah, uh, hold on please. Uh, please give him a big hand.